From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The first of three first responders convicted in the death of Elijah McClain will be sentenced tomorrow. We'll get a preview of what former Aurora police officer Randy Rudima faces and what's next for the two paramedics who were also found guilty of criminally negligent homicide. Then, the next step in the effort to return centuries-old human remains looted on the western slope to their rightful home. Sometimes there's no land to take them back to, so we have to find a place. And that might take a while for them to get back to reinter them. We'll hear from tribal leaders about the challenges. And as Denver looks for solutions to homelessness, a $2 million investment in a pilot project that aims to empower. Basic income is this idea that if you just have an income floor that no one falls under, then we all can be successful. I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Tomorrow, the Aurora police officer convicted in the death of Elijah McClain will be sentenced. 41-year-old Randy Rodima was found guilty of criminally negligent homicide for his part in violently restraining McClain. The 23-year-old massage therapist was injected with the sedative ketamine, a dosage that was too high for his body weight. He died several days later. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry has been following the trials. She joins me now. Hi, Allison. Hey, Chandra. What can we expect in the Adams County courtroom tomorrow? Well, the the sentence itself is up to the judge. Uh, The range is pretty large. It's as low as probation, which would mean no prison time, to as high as three years. Uh, The judge will hear from victims in the case before he announces the decision. So we're expected to hear from Shanine McLean, his mother, possibly some other family members. I'm not sure, but we know or I know his mother will address the judge. I also think that Randy Rodima will get an opportunity to say something, too. Not sure he's going to, but he could. We should note that Rodima was convicted of a lesser charge. Mm-hmm. Does Elijah's mother, Shanine McLean, believe justice was served? She doesn't. She believes Randy Rodima should have been convicted of murder and first-degree assault for what he did that night with Elijah, which included picking him up while he was handcuffed, slamming him to the ground, assuring his supervisor, his sergeant, that he could breathe when the evidence proved otherwise, insisting that Elijah stay handcuffed even after being given the ketamine that ultimately led to his death. You know, there was so much evidence that came out on the body camera footage in the three trials about Rodima's role on the scene. And I think Shanine feels disappointed that he didn't get convicted of what he was initially charged with, which was reckless manslaughter. Can Randy Rodima go back to being a police officer after he serves whatever sentence he receives tomorrow? No, no, no one can be a certified peace officer in Colorado after a felony conviction. The third and final trial of the first responders who were there the night McLean was stopped just wrapped up two weeks ago, just before the holiday. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what happened in that trial. It was for the two paramedics who administered the overdose of ketamine to McLean. 
That's right. The two paramedics were found guilty of criminally negligent homicide, just like Rodima. Mm. Uh, Peter Chikuniak, who was the supervisor on that scene that night, he was also convicted of an assault charge of unlawful administration of drugs causing death. And I mention that because that conviction has an in-custody requirement, and he's already at the Adams County Jail awaiting sentencing in March. He was handcuffed in the courtroom after his conviction in December. Allison, both paramedics were part of injecting McLean. Why did the jury see the actions of one differently than the other? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. It'd be so awesome to talk to the jurors about all this, of course, Mm. which we haven't. But Chikuniak was the supervisor that night. He approved the high dosage of ketamine, uh, the overdose of ketamine, really. Mm -hmm. Um, Elijah got 50% more than he was supposed to get for his body weight. Mm -hmm. Um, And Chikuniak testified in his own defense. And he didn't really seem that remorseful about the situation. Both he and Jeremy Cooper on the stand doubled down on this excited delirium defense, basically saying that that's why they decided to overdose Elijah so heavily with ketamine. and I think the lack of condition on the sand, I don't know, here, we have a clip from it. Um, you can hear Chikuniak saying something quite shocking. Excited delirium, it could kill you. And if we don't work fast, he could die. And I don't want to under-medicate someone to go down to the 400 and then have to pick up the phone to call a doctor to ask for more medication after I waited the one to five minutes to see if it took effect. And if it didn't, I mean, time is of the essence. So I went off the training and went up to 500. Is it rare for paramedics to be charged in the first place? It's rare. It's really rare. I, I, this was the only case I could find nationally where paramedics were charged like this because mm. of a high medication they gave someone that ended up being pivotal in their cause of death. Um, you know, most of these things are settled in a medical malpractice civil setting, um, not a criminal court with felony charges. But I think the prosecutors would say the reckless negligence they showed during the entire ordeal, the fact that they got to the scene, they didn't check his vital signs, um, they didn't talk to Elijah. They didn't touch Elijah. They didn't ask him any questions. They didn't at all tend to him in these crucial minutes after they gave him the overdose of ketamine was the reason they moved forward in criminal court. In total, three police officers and two paramedics were charged after a grand jury indicted them in the death of McLean. Initially, they were all charged together, but broke apart for separate trials in the court system. Mm -hmm. How did that play a part in the trials? Yeah, well, you know, it was split up into three trials. It started in September and it ended right before Christmas. Um, The first was Rodima and Jason Rosenblatt, who were the second and third officers on the scene. The second trial was for Nathan Woodyard, who was the first officer on the scene and the officer who gave Elijah the carotid hold, which cut blood flow off to his brain. And the third trial was for the two paramedics. Mm. You know, ultimately, the trials had actually pretty big differences given all the various roles of all those people that night. But there were a lot of overlapping themes. And I think the one big theme was that none of these people followed their training. Uh, You know, the officers didn't follow training for de-escalation, for paying attention to someone in custody. Uh, The paramedics didn't follow their training at all on, on, you know, people who are showing medical distress and checking them out. Um, But the trials themselves also had different outcomes. It's three different juries. Uh, The first trial saw one conviction, 
mm-hmm. with Rodima, one acquittal. Jason Rosenblatt didn't get uh, didn't get convicted of anything. The second trial was Officer Woodyard, uh, the carot- who gave him the carotid hold. He was found not guilty. And then that third trial, the, both paramedics were found guilty. What stood out to you about this third trial? Well, we really saw through the testimony that the paramedics who were charged, um, you know, how much they were thinking about excited delirium throughout. They were, you know, they really believed this was a real diagnosis. And as we've talked about on the show before, that has all been really debunked in the last few years is junk science, you know, really discredited in the medical establishment and activists. But that was their defense of not touching McLean, not go, you know, checking on him. They thought that he had excited delirium. He was fighting with the officers. He was acting, quote, super strong. But there was never any signs that he was exhibiting any of that behavior. You can see it with your own eyes in the body camera footage. So mm. it's interesting to me that there was such a culture around this excited delirium piece and what to do if if they thought that he had that. I mean, you heard just now that Chikuniak was worried about underdosing Elijah with this sedative ketamine. They, they, there was just this culture that if the police said he was acting super strong, they went down this protocol route to give someone ketamine, even without doing any investigation or, you know, medical checking, um, you know, themselves. That really stood out to me. Um, and the other thing that I would say that really stood out to me about both Jeremy Cooper and Peter Chikuniak, the two two paramedics convicted, was that they just didn't seem super remorseful on the stand. Um, Woodyard, the officer who gave the carotid hold, he testified in his own defense as well. And he took the stand and he was weeping. He was really upset. His wife was crying in the audience, or not the audience, the benches kind of behind the defense table. Mm. He was saying how he wished he could do the whole night over again. He made a million mistakes. He felt awful about the whole thing. It's kind of ruined his life. That wasn't the case with the paramedics. They didn't say that. And this was a different jury, of course. And the jury was very much instructed not to consider emotions in this case. But you have to think that there's a human element there when they're deliberating. And they will be sentenced in March. Mm -hmm. So is that the end of the story? No, not really. I mean, the paramedics will be sentenced. I don't think we I don't think we really know what the end of all of those people's lives are going to be. You know, are they going to appeal and that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. There is still a consent decree in place at the Aurora Police Department, changes that were inspired by McLean's tragic death. Um, There'll be there'll continue to be changes there. We're going to follow that. I imagine there'll be laws introduced in this legislative session around some of these convictions, potentially around protecting paramedics from criminal prosecution for people who die on scene, those sorts of things. I imagine, you know, like I said, they'll be appealing their convictions. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think most importantly, this his tragic death inspired a lot of changes in Colorado. I know his mother continues to want to be a force for good and to push change around her son's death, and she'll continue to do so. Allison, what was it like covering these trials for three months? Uh, you know, it was a lot. Uh, reporters, we, I mean, I don't, we don't like to make the news about them, uh, them ourselves. Um, but I will say, I think just watching that 18 minutes of, this is an 18-minute exchange with, mm. with between the minute he was stopped by police to the minute he got the, the ketamine and he lost his pulse in the ambulance. To watch those 18 minutes of body camera footage for months and months, hearing him die over and over and over, watching how many mistakes were made from the moment they stopped him to the moment they put him on a gurney is just 
wrenching as a human. You know, so many people made mistakes that night. Every single person on that scene didn't do the right thing. And it's hard to think that about that collective failure um, in hindsight and to think that even if just one person, a supervisor, someone would have just done a single thing to save his life, he could have been here. Um, Mm. But no one did. And it's been hard few months of reporting out in Adams County and all of us who were in the courthouse you know, day in and day out as reporters from various outlets have actually kind of bonded over it a little. So, Allison, thank you. You're welcome. Allison Sherry is CPR's criminal justice reporter. She will be in the Adams County Courthouse tomorrow when Aurora police officer Randy Rodima, is a former police officer, is sentenced for criminally negligent homicide in the death of Elijah McClain. Stay with CPR News on air and online for developments. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Setting financial goals can often mean asking yourself, what is it that I actually value? Like, why do I want money for? Money is not the goal. Money is the tool. I'm Rima Hreis, host of The Marketplace Show, This is Uncomfortable. As we set resolutions for the new year, listen for our holiday special where we explore the practical and emotional sides of money. Saturday evening at 8 on CPR News and KRCC. An update now on the effort to return human remains looted decades ago from southwestern Colorado to their rightful place. Western Colorado University professor David Hyde is looking to fulfill the repatriation requirements under federal law. The remains were stolen and later donated to the museum. Professor Hyde says stolen donations offer no archaeological value. When we talk about the looting that was going on in the 1800s and early 1900s, that's not archaeology. Um, these are treasure hunters, headhunters, folks looking for items to put in their personal collections or to sell in the antiquities market. Archaeology, you know, it's, it's controlled excavations. There's note-taking. Uh, we have our context that we record and so forth, and we use that to to interpret the past and understand the past and how people made a living, how they interacted and those kinds of things. Looters, grave robbers, treasure hunters, they don't care about any of that. You know, they, they just want the items and the things that they're looking for. Professor Hyde contacted dozens of tribes about the remains. The Southern Ute responded, as did three other tribes. Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess spoke with tribal officials about the challenges of returning the remains of 25 people. Cassandra Tencio is the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Southern Ute Tribe. She joins me from Ignacio, along with Xavier Watts, the tribe's NAGPRA coordinator. That's the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Cassandra, I'd like to start kind of elementary if we can. Obviously, in this case, the C.T. Hearst Museum in Gunnison has these looted remains that they need to return. So they reach out to the Southern Ute Tribe. Now, what does that process look like on your end? So once a letter comes in through either an email or a, a letter through regular mail, we do go over it. We start, the, start that process to read it, whether or not if we are affiliated and we started the process and we're in the very beginning uh, stages of that. So I don't know just now yet how many other tribes that he has reached out to. There's a certain number of tribes that may have a geographical or a cultural affiliation to this area of the state of Colorado. Of course, as you people, we claim that area. Really, 
our sister tribes would probably also be in on this claim, which is the Ute Mountain Ute and the Ute Indian tribe of the Uinta and Ure located at Fort Duchesne, Utah. And if that becomes the case, uh, then we as three sister tribes will meet and consult on on the practice and we would all maybe make a co-claim, but we would re- continue consultation until um, both sides are satisfied. This is obviously a pretty dense process. What are some of the biggest hurdles to managing these types of handoffs? We haven't really had hurdles. We've had competing claims. We've done consultation through a multi-tribal consultation, but for this process right here where we're at with Gunnison, we're in the beginning stages. So consultation, what we talk about would be sensitive information, but some of that would be if there's a competing claim or if there was somebody there, we would talk that out amongst ourselves as, as tribes, maybe like in an executive session. But in all reality, the way that we're set up here in Colorado and the way that we've worked with this museum and what in the beginning stages, we expect to have it be favorable. I don't think that we've really ever had anything become a major hurdle except for maybe turnover and lack of knowledge about the process uh, from the museum side and, and lack of training. That would probably be the biggest hurdle is that is if there's lack of training and knowledge about what the process is looking like and, and not wanting to ask questions and reach out. What do people not understand or what do they maybe get wrong about the NAGPRA process and what goes into repatriating artifacts and remains like this? Jumping to a conclusion about who they belong to and not reaching out and asking tribes. I think the biggest thing is museums or institutions did not at least consult with a proper number of tribes or like all the tribes that could be affiliated. And I think that's not what's happening here from what I've read and from what I've seen in our emails. We're at the very, very beginning stages of him reaching out to tribes and beginning the consultation process. When I talk about lack of knowledge or turnover, it's that sometimes you have good people that you build a relationship with and then they move on onto other uh, jobs within different either federal agencies or other places, other museums. And so that's what I'm talking about is when you have those built relationships and then you ha- we're all uh, reteaching again about the customs and that our belief systems may be similar, but they may differ in handling and who can handle. And that's where you get it wrong is not asking in a, and talking about those cultural connections to those ancestors or to those artifacts based purely on archaeological perspective. Have you gotten a chance to learn much about these remains and questions? I know we're very early in the process, but have you gotten to dive in a little bit on this particular claim coming out of Gunnison? In all honesty, no. That's a part of the consultation. Is you know the next step would be a site visit and a talk and to take our traditional ceremonial person out there to make sure that things are being looked at. But we have not gotten very far in the talks just yet. We expect those things to happen. We expect to get guidance also and speak with our sister tribes about our best way to move forward with the remains and what that means. So we're at the very beginning stages, and I think it's it's good 
that Gunnison and Western and C.T. Hearst Museum, you know, that they're trying to rectify that. What can museums or maybe even the NAGPRA process more broadly, how can they better serve tribal governments in making these handoffs easier or quicker? I don't know that there's something easier or quicker. I think it's who you're, how you're working with it, and it's on a case-by-case basis as far as how cultural affiliation works and the notice of inventory and going through that process. I don't know that you really want to sometimes fast-track something. Yes, we need to get these ancestors back to where they belong as soon as possible. Yes, it's important that we give them ceremony and that these practices are followed because there there was never an intention for them to come back up. So different tribes do different things, but I think that it's never easier, you know, when you're when you're there in the thick of it and it's always moving and that sense of feeling of of completion when it finally happens is of release and that we did a good job. And, and I think that's the important thing is how we come together to get it done and in the best way possible, being trying to be mindful of a time frame, but also being mindful that that time frame not might meet what is in our heads and to make sure that we're doing it right. Xavier, speaking to Cassandra's point about how rewarding this process can be, I imagine the flip side of this is it must be difficult given that you're working with human remains. Yeah, it definitely is. You can feel, I mean, they do still have their spirit with them and bringing them home and after the process is done and repatriating them, you do feel good because you're bringing them home. The difficulty for me is is that in our tribe, women don't handle remains. They're on the peripheral. There's a balance that needs to be kept. And there are certain things that you can and can't do culturally. Obviously, it's a long ways out, but should the Southern Ute tribe take possession of these remains, can you tell me what will ultimately happen with them? We'll find a place near as possible where where they were found so they can go back to where they were looted from, and we'll do a ceremony there. What should we learn from repatriation efforts like this? Sometimes there's no land to take them back to, so we have to find a place. And that might take a while for them to get back to reinter them and they may be sitting there for a little bit longer that's that's a part of what that that difficulty and the hurdle that challenge you were talking about also so that coincides with that has nagpra been effective do you think has it served the purpose it was supposed to yeah, in our opinion yes i think it has as it's pros and cons but yes it has i agree with that i mean there could be different things but we haven't I think here in Colorado, we work pretty well together and our consultation and working together is is not so daunting. And so I think, you know, uh, NAGPRA for the better, most part, yes, I think it's been effective. If we didn't have NAGPRA, those ancestors would still be objects and not thought of as human people and be still utilized for scientific study and that misperception that Native and Indian people, tribal people were less than human and that it's okay to study us and which it goes against our belief systems and our ancestors and the way that our, our life ways were, the way that we were taught. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. 
Cassandra Atencio is the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Southern Ute Tribe. Xavier Watts is the tribe's NAGPRA coordinator. They spoke with Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess. They're working with the C.T. Hearst Museum in Gunnison and Western Colorado University to repatriate the remains of 25 people that had been looted decades ago. NAGPRA stands for Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which became federal law in 1990. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The stretch of Highway 550 between Silverton and Uray takes drivers over Red Mountain Pass at 11,000 feet. The road clings precariously to the edge of plunging cliffs and sees as much as 25 feet of snow each winter. It's terrified many a soul and taken a few. Yet wagon drivers paid to use the road in the late 1800s to get valuable ore from mines to market. When automobiles came along, few believed one could make the trip. But in 1911, a doctor went from Ure to Ironton in a Model T for a house call. After the road was paved in the 50s, it became a tourist destination. And since then, many travelers have braved the treacherous yet exhilarating 20-mile drive. It's called the Million Dollar Highway. But the awe-inspiring views and bragging rights to driving one of the world's most unforgettable roads are priceless. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Coble & Company. As the new year begins, the city of Denver has committed $2 million to extend the Denver Basic Income Project. The year-long pilot program is the largest of its kind in the country. It's studying what happens when people experiencing homelessness are given different amounts of money. Maria Sierra is the program's community engagement manager. Willie Larkins is a participant. We spoke in the fall about how the program is working so far. Willie, Maria, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Grateful to be here. So, Maria, let's get some context. Tell us about the concept of basic income. So people get different amounts of money, sometimes monthly, sometimes all at once, and you gauge the impact it has? Yes, this was a research project to study the impact of providing direct cash assistance to individuals in Denver city and county experiencing homelessness. And so basic income is this idea that if you just have uh, an income floor that no one falls under, then we all can be successful in our lives and not fall within what we see families and individuals experiencing in poverty. What does the initial assessment show so far? Well, our qualitative report came out this summer, and that really just talked about how people use this money, which really starts to change the narrative of what we hear about when you just give people money, especially those experiencing homelessness. So our qualitative report presented people's lives were improved. They used it to pay bills, to get ahead, to set themselves up in housing, to do things in their life that when you're navigating um, homelessness and and trying to move out of the trauma that you've experienced in your life, that they started to engage spaces that they don't normally do, such as spending family time together, um, planning, you know, a monthly dinner, being able to take your kids to a movie when you, you that's not that's not even an option when you're navigating homelessness. So that's what our qualitative report showed. Our quantitative report is showing that people who reported at enrollment who were sleeping outside at six months were not sleeping outside, that people 
reported using this money to rent a place for them to live, primarily permanent housing, longer term housing. It also improved employability amongst our three payment groups. And it improved the way that people felt about their financial health and the hopefulness in that, that they felt a little bit more secure. And for what I understand, many were able to further their education, they pursued job training, and some even launched their own small businesses. Exactly. We had a participant share with us that she used. She was in Group B, which had the lump sum up front. She utilized that money to start her own LLC and do some small marketing to get um, her business going. And then reached out to us to say, I would love to be able to try to employ some people part-time to help me in my business. Um, And she wanted to do that with current participants. I also understand that it reduced dependency on other forms of social welfare and emergency services, which could lead to cost savings for the city. Yes. One thing that uh, really stands out is people reported not utilizing emergency rooms. And that is something that People don't really talk a whole lot about or even understand the impact that when you're navigating poverty, you don't go to a primary doctor regularly. You wait until you get to the point that you can't deal and you'll go to an emergency room. And the impact on that cost is huge. And and people specifically reported that there were less visits to the emergency room. What would you say have been the challenges with the program? I think... When you work with the unhoused community, I mean, it's just that they're unhoused, so they're not in one place. So a challenge initially was getting connected with people who applied um, and were selected to say, you've been selected, um, and how can we support you in this if you choose that, because it wasn't a requirement. But through our 19 partners, we were able to make those connections But another big challenge was for those currently receiving some form of public benefits, this money did have an impact on that. So our goal was to reach um, 820 people. We have 807 enrolled. Some people chose not to enroll because of that impact on public benefits. Specifically, and more often, was the impact on Social Security benefits. Was there anything surprising in the results? You know, I think... The surprising thing to me individually, and I think to DBIP, is the reporting of our qualitative report and this impact on well-being and mental health. People started to have hope. I think what initially impacts that is we are not telling people that they have to check a box to receive this money and continue to do A through Z. We tell them, we see you, we believe in you. We're not going to tell you what to do with this. We are going to hopefully create an environment through our 19 partners where there's this network of services that they can choose to engage. And I think that that initially created trust to build relationships that leads to that hope. Sounds like a lot of this also is, to your point, freedom to make decisions for yourself and not be kind of locked into this box like, oh, if you do this, then you can't get that. And just kind of giving someone some more independence about what they choose to do with the money. Absolutely. You know, I think if you ask the average person, they're going to say that they do have autonomy over their lives and not immediately recognize where we have lots of checks and balances. Um, And certainly for people who are uh, navigating poverty and homelessness, 
they may tell you that they don't have any opportunities to better their lives and not really understand that autonomy until they're presented with an opportunity that they don't have to check a box and they don't have to go through this long list of things to do. Just saying to somebody that we believe in you and you have what it takes to change your life, um, you just need access. And that access, what DBIP is helping create is access to money, cash. Well, let's bring participant Willie into the conversation. So Willie, how did you get involved in the Denver Basic Income Program? And what was your life like at the time? So um, I just happened to be um, expressing some of my life experiences on Facebook coming out of Florida, Melbourne, Florida. Hmm. And Mark was one of my Facebook friends at that time. And uh, basically he kind of... And it's the founder of the Denver Basic Income Program. Yes. Yes. And so he kind of reached out to me. We're old high school teammates, high school friends, and uh, I thought that was very special. And so we had a long conversation one night, and um, he was telling me about this program. And at the same time, uh, giving me some hope that um, this would possibly help me out in a great manner. And he just wanted to know what was my goals, uh, what did I want to achieve, and if given the opportunity, what that I had planned to do with it. So I took that as an oath. I took that as an honor. And I think most participants will do that. So I was in an unemployed state, behind on bills, not having too many family contact, no support. I was solo, I'm not uh, around family or relatives. So when it came to trying to overcome some, um, some obstacles of uh, payments or being late on bills, everything got behind. And also, I was coming out of a, um, my mom passing away, uh, going through a family divorce. So during that time span, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was going through a mental and depression stage, which didn't allow me any anxiety to focus on life as I should have. And so that, that led me to be subjected to a lot of the uh, environment surrounding me and just unfair treatment by people trying to scam me or, if, you know, if I needed help. Uh, I came with strings attached to it, such as Section 8 and um, other programs of that nature. So, yeah, that was my stage at the time in my uh, present situation. You mentioned obstacles. What were some of the obstacles that were contributing to your instability at that time? Oh, uh, not having uh, food to support myself, not having uh, shelter or a dependable shelter, I, you know, it was facing eviction, things of that nature. Not being able to get a job because I was not able to focus or get to work because of uh, transportation issues. Um, so uh, those, a lot of those personal things that uh, you need to, you know, think better of yourself, to push yourself, wasn't there. And that was quickly fixed through this program. And Maria mentioned mental health, and you mentioned mental health as being a part of what contributed to your situation. But I'm just curious, how did being in the program start to turn things around for you? One word, H-O-P-E, hope, and knowing that somebody was there to give me a financial foundation uh, to support me through whatever I decided to do. That meant a whole lot for someone believing in what I said I would do and watched me do it and prove to them that I, I was doing it. So it was almost as if, you know, when I told them I would pay off bills, I would get this straight. You know, it was very 
relieving of me to show them proof of that. So, you know, coming from a participant of this program, uh, it takes someone with honor. Uh, you got to have uh, a heart of a lion. And that's what I think they look for, someone that has a heart of a lion that wants to achieve and get out of a bad situation and get back on their feet. So there has to be some personal goals for a participant to uh, succeed in this program as well. It's like planting a seed and fertilizing it and watching it grow. And that's the beautiful part of it. Based on what you described, you can definitely get very pessimistic and um, almost feeling like no one's on your side. So when you heard about the program, it's like, hey, we're going to give you money. I'm just curious, what did you think about that? Were you almost like, is this real? I was knocked off my feet. I really was. I, I thought it was a, a blessing from heaven, of course. So with this program, it, it had no questions, no ties, no discouragements. So what I really appreciated about the program, it allowed me to point out and identify my immediate needs, um, hygiene-wise, um, living-wise, sleeping-wise, eating-wise. Uh, and, and it started from there to uh, once you clean yourself up, then you think better of yourself. So it's, it was instantaneously um, rewarding and, and a, a sense of uh, pride and hope what you can do further. How much do you get in terms of money? How often? And what were you able to really do with the money that you had not been able to do before? I was able to be a part of the the lump sum initially. And immediately I paid off bills that were immediately needed to be paid. Um, after that, I, I focused on um, finding stability as far as housing showing them I had proof of uh, income that I had, uh, I can depend on for at least 12 months. So that led me to want to get a job at that time and know that with that job and with this supporting income, I had more than enough to get into housing or get an apartment. So it was an immediate uh, sense of uh, I can do this and get, get off, get off the streets or make my living situation better. So at that point, it became just working working, working to where I didn't need the program, mm. where I found a better job, to where I had less and less stress about bills, didn't have any bills, or they were gone, and here I have achieved uh, something that I wasn't able to do before because I didn't have any support to help step up to that level. So it gave me a sense of pride. It gave me a sense of worth. And it helped me to believe that I can now uh, go get a job. And it didn't have to be a, a good paying job right away because it's just something just to start and get back into the workforce. And that's how you start to build yourself. You know, you got to crawl before you walk. So um, it was definitely a great support. So it sounds like it really opened doors for you that had been previously closed. It sure did. Kicked it wide open. Uh, got me into a situation where... Um, Got a good job, uh, and the first job wasn't a perfect job, and that's what you got to understand. Being on the streets, being homeless, you got to recultivate yourself. You're going to have one job. You may have two jobs. You may have ten jobs, and I went through that trying to find the job that fit me, but at the same time, I knew I had something that was supporting me through till I got there, and it was just even more helpful knowing that. So, uh, yes. So how are things going now? Oh, it's going great. I'm loving to be a great example of this program. I work as a security guard right now. I'm looking to pursue some other uh, jobs, uh, 
I'm looking to pursue some other jobs going forward, higher paying jobs. I'm looking to work for FedEx, maybe. Uh, I bought a car. Uh, I have a steady income now. I have been stable now for, oh, a year now, going on a year. So it's it's been great. Um, I cannot say how much this has meant to me in my life and giving me a ladder to crawl out of that hole I was in. So I heard that you described it as going from surviving and probably barely the way you described it to thriving. Exactly. Exactly. I have to ask, have you been able to do anything special or fun for yourself? You know, self-care is important. Uh, I have been able to smile a lot more, laugh a lot more, engage in uh, physical activities. I'm looking to get back into golfing. Um, I'm a natural athlete as back in my high school days, so I'm trying to uh, do some golfing. Um Trying to uh, pursue some other avenues. I would like to meet Deion Sanders one day. That's one of the reasons I moved. Get in line on that oh, one. I know, I know. But uh, I tell you, I love working with kids. So um, I have reached out to him. I'm trying to send him a letter. But uh, I am looking to uh, shoot to the moon. And it sounds like you want to give back to Absolutely. the Absolutely. And, and that's something I've told the founder. I say, you know, I get to the point where uh, I want to give back monthly to this program to help it thrive. And I think uh, all participants probably will do that. And I hope they, I encourage them to do that because that's what we need. But more importantly, we need people of the city, legislation, uh, big sponsors, uh, pro teams, football, basketball, come on, Denver. City of Denver, we have to. We should open your heart just as Mark, the founder, has and help people that are homeless and get them off the street. You can save not only one life, but you can save many lives. Uh, and uh, it's just all they need is motivation. Anything you want to say to critics who say, well, why should I give you money? I would say to them, um, if I'm coming to you with an open heart and an open mind about my problems and situations, and I can show you proof that I can overcome that if you give me a chance, what else is there to say? So you feel that it's really an investment that benefits others beyond you? Absolutely. It's a great investment in the community. Uh, it's, it's contagious. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it gives hope to the community. And each participant, I think, that gets involved quickly realizes that and they want to continue to be successful. Well, Maria, let's bring you back into the conversation. What feedback are you getting from other program participants? You know, I get to interact with program participants daily. Um, a lot of feedback that I'm getting is a lot of what Willie has already said, and that is they want to help change the narrative of this, and they appreciate the relationship, the trust and the relationship that's been built um, for them to make decisions over their own lives. A lot of participants, as Willie touched on too, thought that they hit the lottery when we told them they were selected and didn't believe that it was true. We had one participant, I just have to share this, who had spent many years in the Department of Corrections and got out and was connected to one of our partners through their reentry programs. He got selected for the $6,500 up front, and the money was put on his card. He came back a week later and said, I don't deserve this. There are other people who deserve this, and I don't want it. And because of that relationship with that community partner and engaging those reentry services, 
the dignity in that interaction helped him realize that he deserved it, like Willie said. He deserved it. And when I hear that kind of feedback, I I mean, it, it leaves me speechless because people are expressing their feelings of being seen and and a lot of our people are not seen outside of homelessness so homelessness itself creates a whole layer for people not to see them well willie i see you shifting in your seat when she says that and um reacting so do you want to say something about that it's totally true um coming to you is a little bit here but it's totally true. Right? You have to have a certain dignity, uh, a certain pride in yourself to be a part of this program, and you don't want to cheat it. Mm. So investors need to know that when there's funding or help supporting this program, it's people that really want to do something, not people that want to cheat the program. Mm. Yeah, and it's just so impactful. I appreciate you opening up because... You know, I know that there are people who may feel differently about it, but this is personal to you. This is your life. You've experienced it. And it seems like you can relate to others in the program and how they're experiencing it. Absolutely. Uh, Totally uh, can relate. And uh, that's a very great. I believe that story totally because it's, I mean, you got to be worthy of it. You got to feel worthy. And if you don't, uh, things are not going to change. You're going to end up doing the same thing. So uh, with that being said, uh, when you're worthy of it and you get blessed like you do in this particular situation, it only pushes you to, to grow and uh, to each one, teach one, try to bring someone else along, which I try to do daily. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of loyalty and really strong emotions of appreciation from those who are in the program like like you said, not to just take, but to also give back and do what they came to do in the program. Would that be fair, Maria? Absolutely. And I think it's because, to use the example I shared, this gentleman got out of the Department of Corrections and and we didn't tell him, you don't deserve this because you just spent that many years behind bars. We didn't say to him, you're a felon, so you can't, you don't qualify for this program. We said to him, you have an opportunity here if you want to take it. And he took it. And the dignity in just looking at somebody like I'm looking at you, who for many years of his life and others, somebody doesn't even look at them in the eyes because of them experiencing homelessness or their situation. DBIP was adamant about having dignity in this process. And with Willie sharing, it's what we succeeded. And that speaks volumes. Willie, Maria, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Willie Larkins is a participant in the Denver Basic Income Project. Maria Sierra is the program's community engagement manager. The city of Denver has committed $2 million to extend the pilot program this year. We spoke in October at the project's halfway point. The next quantitative report on its impact is expected to be released in June. Driving through the state and looking for a place to pull over? 
More than a quarter of the rest stops in Colorado have closed over the last two decades. It got one listener wondering what happened. CPR's Nathaniel Miner has the answer. Lauren Levo of Lakewood knows Colorado's highways. She was a boreal toad researcher before she retired, and she would often do what she calls the tour de toad, driving tadpoles from all over the state to a hatchery near Alamosa, thousands of miles on Colorado's often winding roads. I tried to avoid headlines such as Lakewood woman and 537 tadpoles die in fiery crash off of Wolf Creek Pass. So she'd often stop at roadside rest areas and take little naps, and then get back in the car and back on the road. But over the years, Levo noticed that rest areas were closing. So she asked us to look into it. For health, for safety, for convenience, why are they all closing? Okay, let's start with the basics. Colorado had 36 rest areas in 2007. Now, there are just 26, and a few of those are temporarily closed. It's a decline of more than 25%. The root issue is, of course, money. Hope Wright with the Colorado Department of Transportation says the agency would often get grants for rest areas, but only to build them. And then no funding for maintenance. And these facilities were often remote, miles away from city water and sewer lines. So when a couple of rest areas on the Eastern Plains, for example, needed expensive new wastewater systems, department leaders decided to just close them entirely instead. We had been struggling for years and years and years, and without a major investment, we just couldn't keep those open. But I do have good news for Levo. CDOT is finally putting more money into rest areas, both maintenance and big upgrades. The Vail Pass rest area is getting a $22 million makeover. More projects are being planned across the state as well. The rest area campaign, though, is already behind schedule and over budget because facility conditions are so bad. But Wright with CDOT says once the agency is caught up on maintenance, it would like to think bigger, like opening new ones. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. What questions do you have about life in our state? Send them to us at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders, and we may answer them on air and online. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.